is out there. Thank you for the love. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, but we, we wanted to do a series on it because we've, we've bounced off this issue before, but um, Jesus talks about it a lot. And so we figured it'd be worth going deeper into these things. And so three weeks is a good amount of time to go deep into it biblically, um, to think about our hearts before God and to consider uh, what he might be saying to us through his word concerning money and finances. Because the truth is, the reason Jesus talks about it so much is that money really is a symptom of a deeper thing. That money is kind of a symptom on the surface, but what's really going on is much deeper and needs much deeper work. You can think about it like this. I, I hate going to the doctors, and I, I don't know why it is. Like, it's not particularly unpleasant, but I resist going to the doctors as much as possible. And most of the time, that works out fine. But there was one occasion on which it, it probably went a little bit to the other side. We'd, um, we used to go on a trip uh, each year with the youth group to Fiji. And, um, and there's actually someone here who's visiting this morning who was actually on, I think, even this particular trip. So I don't know what God's saying through that, but whatever. Pay attention. It's going to be amazing. But we, we, went along, we went to Fiji, and we do this every year with the youth group. We'd go and serve in the villages, build houses, that kind of thing, and then, uh, and then come back to Sydney. Now, each year as well, it was, almost, it was almost just routine that people would get pretty ill. And so I went, to, I went to five of these, and so it was probably every even or odd one that I would get, you know, reasonably sick. And on this one, on the, on the flight home, as we, kind of, as we were flying home, I started to feel like I was, getting, like I was coming down with something. I figured it was kind of something on the lines of a flu or something like that. And as the flight continued, so it was about a five-hour flight, I think, and as it continued, I started to feel worse and worse and worse. Now, we, we would always come in on the Friday, and then that night would be the last night of youth group for the year. So I wasn't rostered on to anything, but I'd always go along. The whole team would come along. It was a great way to kind of end the term. And I was starting to feel kind of significantly worse. But I figured this isn't, this isn't kind of a go-to-a-doctor thing. I'm just I'm feeling a bit funny. I'm starting to feel all clogged up and whatever, and, and just feeling a bit rough. Probably the thing that should have triggered my going to hospital was when my foot was so sore and swollen that I couldn't walk on it. But we happened to have some crutches at home. I don't know why. I thought, well, that's obviously God's plan for me, so I don't have to go to the doctors. I can just get to youth on the crutches. And it should have triggered me like, that's weird. I don't normally use crutches. Anyway, we got home, and Mel had to head off that night to, to a wedding that was kind of up the coast. And she said, are you, are you going to be fine? If you need to, will you take yourself to the doctor? I thought, of course I will, I, like I always do, right? But as the night went on, I started to get those fever dreams, you know, where you start to dream lucidly, and it's the same thing over and over again. It starts to send you a bit mental, and things kind of got worse and worse. And eventually the next day, when I couldn't sleep and I was sweating constantly, I thought, you know what? I might just get Dad to help me to pop over to the hospital. When I got there, I found out that a cut on my foot, it was either, it was either an infected mosquito bite or something like that, uh, had sort of blown out into cellulitis, which is potentially life-threatening. And it, was, uh, it wasn't that dramatic for me, but you could see from my leg that it was, kind of, it was swelling up. It started to look almost gangrenous, and it was, the swelling was starting to go all the way up the leg. And so they just pumped me full of antibiotics and had a nurse come and visit for the next few days and all of that, right? But the, the simple principle was, if I just kept dealing with it like it was a cold or a flu and just kept taking Panadol and Nurofen, nothing would have got better, right? You needed to go deep and to deal with the issue that was really driving what was going on. If you didn't deal with the cellulitis, none of the symptoms were going to get better either. When it comes to money and finances... We're about to read a passage, or Gav just read a passage, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How you use money 
is a symptom of where your heart is. And unless you track all the way down to the heart and what's going on there, we will never do a deep work in regards to these things. And so I pray that over these next three weeks, as we dig into this passage and several other parts of the Bible, that this would be the most transformative series we've ever done at City Light. And I, I have some confidence in that because I know that Jesus speaks so deeply on these things so often and so profoundly. And what we're going to read in this passage today, even though he said it 2,000 years ago, in a far less financially sophisticated society than ours, what he says rings just as true as it did then. It strikes to the heart in every way as much as it did then. And so I'm going to pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, would be convicting us of what his truth says about, about our money and finances and how we are to worship God. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are a generous God, that you love us, that you don't leave us in our sin, but you show us how it is that we might live for you and worship you and honor you, and even with our wealth. And Father, we pray that as we dig into this series, you would open our eyes to see sin in our own hearts and to see the glory of your vision for living out gospel-shaped generosity. That as we understand the depths of the gospel of Christ sent for us to die in our place, that we would see how much you have loved us, how generously you have poured yourself out for us, that we might do the same, and that our finances might be a reflection of this. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. When Matthew 6, uh, we, we pick up the reading in sentence 19, where Jesus is talking to a crowd and he says this, It'll come up on the screen for you, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus starts by laying out what he's on about. He's talking to a crowd, and the context is that this is one of Jesus' sort of most famous sort of sets of teaching that it's the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking to a large crowd and he's kind of laying out what it's going to be like to be a disciple of, of Jesus. Uh, and in this, uh, just before this section where he's talking about money, he's talked about things like prayer, like giving to the poor and fasting. And the pattern is the same each time he talks about something. He, he keeps talking about, so when you're, when you're giving to the poor, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Don't do it to get public applause. And he says, do it privately and your Father who is in secret will reward you. So it's this thing of don't do it for horizontal gains, but for your vertical relationship with God. He says the same line when it comes to prayer. Don't pray in the public streets so that people will say, wow, what a holy person that is. He says do it in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. It goes again with fasting. He says don't fast, uh, which was kind of a, an activity that the Pharisees often did to demonstrate that they were really holy. He says when you fast, don't make a big deal of it. Don't put makeup under your eyes and look at him and go, oh gosh, I'm so hungry all the time. I guess I'm just so holy. And he says, don't do that. He says, do it in secret so no one knows about it except your heavenly Father whom you love because that's what matters. And so the context is that he's saying here that it's relationship with your heavenly Father that is crucial. Not appearances, not how other people think of you, but your personal relationship with your heavenly Father. And so then he says of this one, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. This relationship with God is what is crucial, not stuff that's on earth. And we'll get more into that in, in just a moment. 
But that's reasonably straightforward. He says, look, treasure on earth, it's going to rust, it's going to fall apart. There is nothing you can have in this life that death or despair or disease or decay is not going to take. So store it for yourselves treasure in heaven. Your relationship with God, investing in that is what is going to matter and that's what's going to last. But then he says something kind of strange. I don't know if you picked it up in the reading. Look at what he says. He gives an illustration. In Matthew 6, 22 to 23, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now again, in one sense, this is kind of straightforward. He's saying, look, if, you, if your eye is good, then you can see. It fills your body with light. If your eye is blind, then you can't. It fills your body with darkness. If you, it doesn't matter how much light you are surrounded by, if your eyes aren't working, none of it will be processed by your senses. And that's reasonably straightforward. He's saying your eyes are good, you can see. Your eyes are bad, you're blind. But why is he saying this? He's just having a go at blind people. Well, that would be pretty slack. But he's wedged it in between two, two, two sections where he's talking about money. What is he saying here? He's saying money has the power to blind us like nothing else. Because money has a power to blind. Greed has a power to blind. There are other sins that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, and yet in none of them does he warn people that, they, that it's a blinding kind of sin. And for obvious reasons, there's something about greed that is hard for a greedy person to detect. When Jesus warns about adultery, he doesn't say, watch out because you might be committing adultery. You know. You know it's, it's not the case that someone committing adultery would be like, wait a second, you're not my wife. <laughs> Goes home and says, honey, the, the funniest thing, you're going to laugh when I tell you this, I accidentally committed adultery today, right? It's not, that has never happened. Jesus warns something unique about greed because unlike other sins, it can totally have hold of your heart and you have no idea. It has the power to blind like other sins don't. And isn't that the case? If you were to ask around and ask people, what are the top three biggest problems in the world? Almost always in that top three, one of them will be greed. But I suspect if you ask people if they were greedy, most people would say no, or at least would kind of equivocate, would say, oh, I guess I could be a bit more generous. But I don't think anyone would out and out say, 100%, I am. I'm greedy. I'm absolutely susceptible to greed. And so we have a world that everyone knows is being ruined by greed, and yet nobody thinks they're greedy. And that is the power of money to blind. See, because in our culture there is a lot of wealth around, there is always going to be someone in your life who you know pretty closely who is greedier than you, who has more stuff than you and uses it more selfishly than you do. So everybody can look around and see someone and go, that's greed or that, or that, and that is greed. And so we create a scale for ourselves where we're somewhere near the generous bottom whilst everyone else is this kind of greedy sort of world. And so this is the issue with this series as we kick it off. Probably, you don't think this series is for you. Probably. So you might be really keen for this series because you're like, yeah, there are a lot of people in this church that need to hear this. I'm so glad you guys are doing this. I can think of a few people already in my group who could really use these talks, right? Or maybe you're a uni student and you're on a diminished income and you're like, yeah, there's a lot of people working full-time in this church. They could really afford to be a bit more generous. 
Maybe it's that, it's that you can think of other rich people in your life. You're like, man, I, t- I can't wait till we get the recordings for this because I'd love to pass it on to them because they really need to hear about this. Or maybe you're here and you're skeptical about who Jesus is and you're thinking, look, I, I don't need to hear this because, look, I know what these are about. Churches give these all the time because they're just trying to get money out of people. That's exactly what I thought was going to happen here, right? I don't need to hear this. Look, nobody thinks they need to hear this. And this is one of the problems with greed. Even while I was preparing this, I was praying to God. I was praying, look, as I speak on this stuff, would I not consider myself immune from hearing it? Would I not think I've thought this stuff through? I've given talks on this before. I don't need to hear this because that's exactly what Jesus is warning against. He's like, if the eye is dark, the whole body is dark. Everybody is susceptible to being blinded by greed. Every single one of us. We all think it's for someone else. And even as I was praying through this, I thought, what's that passage where it says, you know, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye while there's a log in your own. And it's Matthew 7, which is directly after the passage we just read. I don't know if that's Jesus' design, but it's interesting to think about. See, none of us think we need to hear this, which is exactly why we need to hear this. And I would urge you as you're doing this, please refrain from thinking about all the applications that this could possibly have for people who need to hear this. And just think, Jesus is speaking to me directly, and say to me, what is it that I need to change here? Because my heart is susceptible to greed. And so with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus says. What is it that greed is actually blinding us from? Well, it's right there in sentences 19 to 21. Look at what he says. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, And thieves, do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Greed blinds us from seeing that stuff is not just stuff, it's treasure. Treasure is different to just physical possessions. Treasure is something that we desire deeply. When you take an object and attach the deepest desires of our heart to it, then it becomes a treasure. Think about it like this. If if your car gets you know, is stacked and gets ruined, it's an inconvenience, it's an annoyance, you'll be upset about it. But if that car is your treasure, if you bought it because it's a symbol of status and money and authority, when it gets ruined, you won't just be upset, you'll be devastated. You'll be furious, you'll be enraged. Because when the heart attaches to an object, that thing becomes a treasure. You can have clothes that if they get ruined, you're kind of like, oh, whatever. But if your heart is attached to them, if your image is connected to them, if your identity is connected to those clothes and they get ruined, you will be furious when they're destroyed and your kids throw up on them. It's never happened to me, but you know. Whenever we take a thing and it attaches to the deepest desires of our heart, it becomes a treasure. And that's what Jesus is saying you've got to watch out for. He says, greed blinds us to the fact that these things aren't just things for us. They are our treasure. They are where we, we find our identity and meaning in life. They're attached to our very deepest heart. And, and that's why in 624, he finishes with this warning in this little section. Look at what he says after talking about money and blindness and all of this. In 624, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus explains what he's talking about. He's not thinking about anything vague when it comes to money and treasure and all these things. He's saying, no, this is a, this is a matter of worship. Our wallets reveal what we worship. 
He's saying if you have treasures, if you are treasuring things here on earth, if your deepest desires are attaching to those things, then money will function for you like a master. And he says you can't have two of those. He says you will either serve God or money. You will either believe that one is something to give your life to or the other, but not both. They will not cohabit. See, love is a desire for something that brings us joy. In the simplest sense, isn't it? Whatever you love is something that brings you joy. But there is kind of little L love and then there's capital L love. You can little L love a lot of things. You can love chocolate, you can love sports, you can love any number of things without there being any contradiction. But there will be one thing that you capital L love, that you believe will bring you the most joy, that you believe full life will be found in. And whatever that thing is will function as your master. It will set all the priorities for your life. It will be what you build your life around. It will be, as Jesus says, your master. Whatever you capital L love will determine what you love and hate, what makes you jealous or happy. It will determine the priorities in life, your relationships. You cannot capital L love God and money. You cannot simultaneously believe that my highest joy will be found in God and in what money brings. It will be one or the other. And Jesus says, this is what greed blinds us to. It makes us think, I'm just buying stuff. I just like nice things. And Jesus says, no, watch out. You're storing up treasures, things that you believe will bring you ultimate joy and they're functioning for you like a God. So the question is, why do we love money? Why is it so universal? Why is it that Jesus could talk about this in a completely different context, an ancient Near Eastern context 2,000 years ago, and is just as true today? Why do we love and relate to money in just the same way? And how does it gain mastery or power over our life? Well, it does it quite simply by tapping into our fears. I remember reading a, a, a biography of Hitler's life, and there have been many, many bios written of his life. And this particular author uh, wanted to answer just one question. He just had one question that was spinning around in his mind as he'd read over all these biographies. And he said that he, he wanted to answer the question of how could such a bizarre misfit ever have been in a position to take power in Germany, a modern, complex, economically developed, culturally advanced country? That's what he wanted to know. He's like, looking at Hitler's life, he wasn't extraordinary. He flunked out of school. He wasn't exceptionally bright. His speeches weren't particularly articulate. He just said the same stuff over and over and over again for hours it would be. He's like, how did this guy win over sophisticates and high society? How did he do it? And the answer was that he tapped into people's fears. This is Sir Ian Kershaw's summary of how Hitler gained so much power. He said, charismatic authority... So he's talking about this particular type of leadership, these bombastic kind of leaders. He says, charismatic authority did not rest on the outstanding qualities of the individual. So he's a pretty ordinary person. Rather, it rested on the perception of such qualities among a following, which, during a crisis, gives the leader heroic attributes and the sense that he is a saviour. When Germany was so down and out after losing the First War, during a crisis, this very unexceptional man took on the qualities of a saviour and a hero, the Fuhrer. Because he tapped into people's fears. The deep national fear of humiliation was enough for people to believe if anyone can take us away from that, they must be worth putting up on a pedestal. And they followed him. 
even to destruction. Money taps into our greatest fears and it acts like a savior or a God. It says to you, you know what you're most afraid of? I know what it is. You're afraid of humiliation. Whatever it is from when you're a kid or even growing up, you hate the idea that people would be able to look down on you. If you've got money, no one's going to look down on you. Once you have money, you're going to look down on other people. They won't be able to look down on you. It will give you power. If your greatest fear is rejection, you fear the sense that the people really, if they knew you, wouldn't accept you. Money says, well, if you have enough stuff, look, everyone's going to accept you. You know who people want to be around? People with money. Even if they're very ordinary personalities, once you have money, everyone's going to like you. If your greatest fear is stress or demands and what you really want in life is comfort and you think that will bring me ultimate joy, money says, hey, I'll take care of everything. You won't have to budget. You won't have to scrimp and save. You won't have to do all this rubbish. Look, once you have enough money, you can just do what you feel like. You won't have to stress out about stuff. You can get all the insurance you need. You can buy new things when they run out. You're not going to have to stress and worry and all these things. I can take care of all of that for you. If your greatest fear is uncertainty... Money says, hey, I can give you control. You can, you can be in charge of not just the next two or three years, but the next 10 or 20 or 50 years. I can set you up so that you know what's going to happen, and no matter what comes at you from any side or angle, you'll be able to take care of it because you will have money. And once we believe this, then it starts to gain complete control over our lives. It orders all our priorities because we think, once I have money, my fears will be dealt with and they'll be gone. Jesus says, watch out. He says, that is the blinding power of money. It promises to deliver you from your fears, and it can't. So how do we overcome this? Well, this is why Jesus goes on to say what he says next in Matthew 25 and 26. Look what he says. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So the therefore is connecting it to the passage we've just read. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Now, Jesus says to them, he's just talked about this blinding power of money. It taps into our fears, and Jesus says to them, hey, don't worry, don't fear. Now, in one sense, that's not very helpful advice. If you just say to someone, hey, I see that you're worried, just don't. Just stop. Like if someone's struggling financially, like, just get rich. It's not that hard. Well, you know, what's the problem here? And here, Jesus is saying to people who are obviously anxious about things and, and likely to trust in money, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. But he gives them a reason. He says in, in 6.27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If you then are not able to do the smallest thing of that, why are you anxious about the rest? That's a fair point. Jesus says, have you ever solved a problem by being anxious about it? When you anticipated this situation that may or may not actually end up happening, and you got anxious about it, and you lost sleep about it, did that anxiety ever solve it? It might have led you to some problem solving that actually did, But the anxiety itself doesn't help with that. That's a fair point. Anxiety doesn't add anything. He says, look, being anxious about stuff can't even add to the span of your life. In fact, we know that anxiety and stress over a long period starts to shorten our lifespan. So it's counterproductive. So he's making a helpful point there. He says, don't be anxious about anything. And don't be anxious because, really, 
who can add a single hour to their life by being anxious about it? It's pointless. It's sideways energy. But in some ways, that still doesn't help, does it? Because you can fully know how useless it is to get worried about something, and it still winds you up. And so that's why Jesus goes deeper. Look at this. As we read this whole section, as he explains why it is that followers of Jesus should not worry, look at what he says. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Jesus is making a simple case here from nature. He says, look around you. He's like, look at the birds. You know, in Luke, he even, he even describes, he particularly picks out the raven, the ugliest bird, the ancient equivalent of the ibis, the bin chicken. That just, I mean, what was God thinking when he made them? But anyway, look, he's got a great sense of humor. But think about the fact that even in creating the ibis, they, they get fed. And sure, it's from bins or whatever, but they, but they survive. And, and he's just making a simple case in point. He's saying, look, if God looks after all creation, and none of creation is made in the image of God, we know that from Genesis 1, it's just you who are. And more than that, you are followers of Jesus. You've been saved by him. He's like, your heavenly Father knows you. He knows what you need, so don't worry. He's going to look after you. And the reason he can say that with such authority is that he is standing there because he has been sent by his heavenly Father on a rescue mission to save us. The guy who is talking to them right here, Jesus is speaking to this crowd, knowing full well, looking out at this crowd, that soon he is going to die on a cross on their behalf for their sin. That he is the living illustration. They are looking at him, and he is the living illustration of the fact that their heavenly Father knows what they need and cares for them. The Heavenly Father looked down and saw His people in their sin without any hope of redemption or coming back from it, and He sent Jesus to die. He opened the storehouses, the treasure houses of heaven, and poured out what was most precious, the blood of Jesus on the cross, for you. He says, your Heavenly Father knows what you need. If He took care of sin and death, then He's going to take care of you. Here's the issue. Jesus is saying this. If you trust in money, what do you get? You get worry. And if you trust in your heavenly Father, what do you get? You get real hope and comfort. Money promises so much and delivers so little. Our wallets reveal who we worship. If we worship money, we will reap worry. And if we worship God, we will reap hope and security because He is the one who can really take care of us. And so what do we do with this? There's one last practical thing that Jesus gets into as he finishes this section on money and on not worrying. In Matthew 6.33, we read this. It'll come up on the screen. Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God is something that Jesus teaches on regularly. And if you wanted to sum up all that he had to say about it, and to, to sum it up as succinctly as you could, the kingdom of God is that part of the universe that willingly worships King Jesus. The kingdom of God is that part of the universe that willingly worships King Jesus. We know that one day he will bring all things under his feet. In Philippians 2 we read that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There is a day of judgment when those who don't follow him will go to eternal judgment and he will settle all accounts so that all creation will be those who worship him fully and completely. But until that time, the universe is made up of souls who freely choose to reject God and are part of this universe that freely worships Jesus and lives under his kingship. And so to seek first the kingdom has two aspects. The first one is this, that it's internal. That seeking the kingdom personally means that I bring more and more over my life, more and more of my life, under the lordship of Jesus. That as I grow in my understanding of the gospel and how much he has done for me and how freely he died for me, more of my life starts to come under, that, under the gospel and to be shaped by it and impacted by it. Charles Spurgeon once said that a Christian undergoes two conversions, one of the heart and then one of the wallet. Classic. But, um, but the, the point that he's making is that over time, we, we grow in our understanding of the implications of the gospel for our lives and it starts to permeate or, or cover more and more and more of our life as we understand the greatness of his lordship. And so the first part of, of seeking first the kingdom is that in our own lives it means bringing more and more of our life under submission to King Jesus, knowing that he is good and he is worthy. And so on this one, I'd urge you on this, that as you think about money over these couple of weeks as we dig into this series, I want you to think about this. The idols cannot be simply resisted. They must be replaced. Idols cannot be resisted, simply resisted. They must be replaced. Money promises to give us our idols. It promises us control. It promises approval. It promises power. It promises comfort. And it delivers on none of them. And when we make those things ultimate, they become our master and our idol. But you can't simply just resist them. They need to be replaced by a superior love for Jesus. That's how the heart works. To illustrate it as simply as possible, think about this. In my marriage, if I want to remain faithful to my wife, Mel, the best way to do that is not to kind of write down, is not to just simply resist any other woman, to kind of get out a, a diary and to write down all the women that I know in my life and just to catalogue all of their faults and irritations, all the things I don't like about them. And then on Mel's birthday, which was last week, to kind of present to her and say, look, I want to show you that I'm a faithful husband and I love you. And so let's just go through some of your friends and how annoying they are and how much I don't like them. Like, in a sideways way, she might be kind of somewhat, you know, moved by that. But you would imagine that you're like, that's fine, but that's maybe not the focal point of the marriage, right? The way that you build a healthy marriage is to focus on that person, to love them and grow in your affection for them. And in doing so, you can't simultaneously grow in affection for your spouse and for someone else. The, while you resist unfaithful affections, you invest in faithful ones. And this passage, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, seek first the kingdom. He says, it's not just don't be anxious. He says, yeah, 
Don't be anxious. Don't trust in money to solve all your problems. But at the same time, seek first his kingdom. Because the more you seek after the lordship of Jesus in all of your life, the less space there's going to be to trust in idols and to worship them. And so I want to urge you, what will you do this week to feed your faith in God, to seek his kingdom, to see Jesus take over more lordship of your life this week and to starve out idols? You cannot do just one or the other. We'll be both. We be in the Word. We've got a stewardship uh, sort of devotionals that we got from a church called Redeemer Presbyterian. If you've read anything by Timothy Keller, that's his church. And they've got a 20-day devotional on stewardship. That'll go up on our group page. I would urge you, would you commit to doing that for 20 days? Alongside your Bible readings or as your main readings, but to consider what the Bible says about how we're to think about stewarding our finances. Would you read The Treasure Principle? It's a book by a guy called Randy Alcorn that I've read through and I, can, I recommend it thoroughly. It's up there at the back. You can grab it. Um, you can pay for it just on PayWave. It's, it's that easy to get done. But would you do that in order to invest in seeking after God's kingdom and thinking how it is that Jesus might have lordship over all of your life? Would you even give money away to advance the kingdom this week? See, the second aspect of seeking after the kingdom of God, the, the first one is that we would, we would have Jesus take over more and more of our life, that we would have him reign over all of our life. But the second one is that we would see his reign, that part of the universe that worships Jesus, expand as much as we can in our lifetime. Would you give money away this week to see gospel ministries increase. Randy Alcorn, who I just mentioned before, the author of The Treasure Principle, remarks, I've heard people say, I want more of a heart for missions. I always respond by telling them, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in mission and your heart will follow. When Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, it works two ways. In one way, it reveals our heart and where our desires are going. But in another way, it shows that our actions guide our heart, don't they? Every time we make a financial transaction, we make a heart transaction with it. And as you invest in something, if it's a treasure on earth that you are attaching your heart to, it will cement that relationship. And yet if it's something to expand and advance the kingdom of God, it will increase that in our hearts too. Every time we make a transaction, we are actively coaching our heart to desire other things. Our hearts need coaching and cultivating. Would you do something this week to coach and cultivate your heart that it might seek after the kingdom of God, that you might trust Jesus fully with your life? But going in the other direction, what are you going to do over this week to starve your idols? As you feed your love for God and you desire to trust in Jesus and to bring all of life under his lordship, what are you going to do to starve idols out this week? doesn't mean taking a break from buying anything other than essentials this week. I don't know what that means for you, and you can categorize that how you will. But is that something you would do? Does it, mean, does it mean quitting Instagram for a week or two or three? I don't have it, so I'm not sure entirely how it works, but I'm pretty sure of this, that Instagram cannot survive unless it can get you to reliably and predictably buy things. That means that that platform that you open up 
is that they're putting all of their effort towards making sure that they can coach you into buying things. If you are looking to starve out greed in your life, it's unlikely you'll be able to read through everything in Instagram and not start to well up greed in your heart. It is there to help you to desire things. They, they, have, people, like, they have influencers on Instagram who are there to subtly just you know, casually present products as though they, they were never coached into doing it so that you will see them, want them, want the idol behind it, whatever that is, and buy it. If starving our idols means this week quitting Instagram, why not, why not do that? Look, whatever it is, the action from this week, as we start on this, as we start on this journey through money, stewardship, and freedom, is this week to work on the heart, to invest in understanding what the Bible has to say about all of life coming under the lordship of Jesus, about trusting God completely, and starving our idols. I don't know, it may not be any of those things for you, but I'd encourage you, do at least something. Because we know what, the, what happens when we do nothing. We can guarantee the same results again and again. Jesus says, where your, heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you going to do this week to cultivate generosity in your heart? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are the lover of our souls. We praise you that you took care of our deepest need, that we were in sin, separated from you, facing eternity in hell, and yet you sent Christ to die in our place. And we know that he warns us that greed can blind us and can lead us to think that we don't need to hear these things, and yet we do. And so we pray, Father, that over this week you would help us to cultivate our hearts, to desire you to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and not to worry about these other things, to not be drawn in by the power of money, but to actively fight against it. And Father, we pray that you would do this, not that we might be able to boast in our righteousness, knowing that we have none, but that we might boast in Christ and the work that he is doing in our lives and hearts, that we might steward what we have for your glory, that you might be honored with our wealth, and that it might demonstrate that we have a king who is good and who died for us in our place. Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy.